Hello, and welcome to I Am Dad podcast with your fatherhood authority, Kenneth Braswell. 30 minutes of wisdom, information, resources, and nuggets to help you on your fatherhood journey. Or maybe you're just curious and want to hear some real talk about fatherhood, family, and the minds of men. Well, guess what? We got you too. Sit back, grab your pad and pen, and maybe even bring a little something to sip on. Enjoy 30 straight minutes of fatherhood, family, and fun with the fatherhood authority. Kenneth Braswell. Hello and welcome to I Am Dad Podcast. I'm your host, Kenneth Braswell. Um, I've been with you now for the last ooh, number of Sunday mornings at 8 a.m. in the morning, Eastern Time. Um, thank you so much for all of your support, um, your comments, your followings, your shares, um, your suggestions on shows and topics that you want to hear. Uh, people you want to hear from. And my guest happens to be one of the people that someone specifically, Dr. Eden, said, you got to have her on your show. And your name was already on my list of people to talk to. So I was able to say back to her, I'm like, nope, she's on my radar. She's always on my radar. And we will see if we can break into her extremely busy schedule to get her on I Am Dad podcast to talk about her work. But for those of you who don't know her, she is the nation's or one of the nation's leading poverty researchers working in the domains of welfare and low wage work, family life and neighborhood context through direct in-depth observations of the lives of low income populations. Her hallmark, the hallmark of her research is her direct in-depth observations. Ooh. Something somewhere in there, I kind of doubled something <laughs> up on. Um, but Dr. Eden is the William Church um, Osborne Professor of Sociology and Public Affairs at the Princeton School of Public and International Affairs, the director of the Center for Research on Child Well-Being, Princeton University, co-director of the Joint Degree Program in Social Policy, and a principal investigator on the Fragile Families and Child Wellbeing Study at Princeton University. She's also on the American Voices Project and deepening our understanding of America's most vulnerable. She is the author of two books. One I've read and I read thoroughly and I enjoyed the way you wrote that book. And that is Doing the Best I Can, Fatherhood in the Intercity. And then she also co-authored a book, I believe in 2017, It's Not Like I'm Poor, How Working Families Make Ends Meet in a Post-Welfare world. How you doing, Dr. Eden? I'm doing great. I'm really glad to be with you. Thank you so much. Listen, let's start here. What's keeping you busy? What's keeping you up at nights right now in terms of the work that you're doing? You know, uh, it's kind of exciting. Um, we're learning things about fathers. I think that really confirm many of the themes that you and I have been talking about for many years. And this is new work from the survey. So I'm, you know, mostly I'm a neighborhood, go out and talk to them sort of researcher, but I also run um, a large population-based survey that has a, one of the, the really the largest samples of, um, of fathers, particularly disadvantaged fathers in the country. And what we're learning uh, most recently from those survey data, um, uh, and again, you know, this, this confirms much of what you've been telling people for a long time, <laughs> is that fathers really do matter. The, the, the young people in the study are um, now 22, mm -hmm. 
Um, when we look at what leads to um, adolescent, positive adolescent outcomes, uh, dad, involvement with dad is big. Mm-hmm. Uh, what another, th- so very, very consequential. Uh, many times there are stepdads in the picture now. Stepdads are also really consequential. And dads and stepdads don't compete, they complement. So this is very different from what we had known before from older studies. It seems like fathers are figuring it out and they're figuring out to father, how to father in complementary ways rather than, um, rather than competitive ways. This is a real breakthrough. Mm-hmm. Finally, uh, yeah, dads are coming back around. So uh, sometimes, you know, their um, dads have been um, uh, excluded from their children's lives due to incarceration, due to addiction, uh, sometimes due to maternal gatekeeping. And once the kids get old enough for the dads to have direct contact with with their children, uh, they pursue that. So we're seeing in adolescence, dads coming back and re-engaging, even if they've spent years um, not not being able to engage with their with their children. So those are some of the really uh, the, the findings that I'm really excited about. Wow, I'm glad you said a couple of things because there's uh, I think one of the things I'm excited about in this space is that we're beginning to connect the dots. I think for so many years, many people have been um, charged with defining the dot and no one has been out there connecting the dots. And I think with the writing of your books and things like these podcasts and conferences and new people, social media coming into the space, right? Um, That we're beginning to kind of make a little bit of sense out of really what's happening out there and to begin to tell a different narrative. You said something that really struck my heart is something that we um, talk to. I have a, a training that I do called Standing in the Gap, Single Moms Raising Boys. Um, and every time I start that training off, I always say to them, you don't have the only perspective of being a single mom. I have one too. I was raised by one. So I could tell you some things about you that you don't <laughs> even know from the vantage point of a little boy being raised by a single mom. And you can always kind of see their wheels begin to turn um, when you kind of hit them with something that um, allows them to expand their narrative. And then I saw out yeah. these two conversational starters that they have to agree to before we move forward. The first one is for every single mom, there is a single dad. And you should see there the way that they look at me. And I said, no, I said, uh, the term single mom doesn't denote parenting status. It denotes marital status. So if right. a single mom, there is a single dad the connotation of the word single mom has just been built to mean many other things to many other people, but in the essence of it, for every single mom, there's a single dad. And it takes them a minute to get to it. And then they're like, okay, I, I, I'm, I'm with you. I, 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 could, I could go with that. And then the second one is what you just said, which is um, a dad can be compensated for, but not replaced. And the Correct. realities of that 
inability to replace is the hole in that child's heart left by the absence of their father. So no matter who steps in to compensate for that hole, that hole still exists and they still yearn to want to know and understand everything they can possibly understand about that father who was supposed to build it, be there to fill that hole for them. What I want you to talk a little bit about, because I don't think I went to the website and the website, I think for most people could be overwhelming, but it's really important for folks to understand the importance of the fragile families and child well-being study. Um, what is it and what was it built to accomplish? So um, back 25 years ago, um, we couldn't really tell the story about single parents and their children because our national data sets didn't have enough single parents to be able to build a portrait, especially, you know, taking into account racial and ethnic differences, differences in area of the country, um, differences in, in religious views. So um, Sarah McClanahan, um, who just passed this last year, the founder of the study, Irv Garfinkel and uh, Ron Mincy, both from Columbia University. Um, you know, they, they, they built a study that um, began in 2000 and it oversampled uh, single mothers or as we began calling them non-marital births, right? Because, uh, and and we did this in in cities across the United States. We we were in the hospitals. I don't even know if HIPAA would let you do this stuff. We were in the hospitals watching these children being born, and then we would interview the mother and the father. And one of the first really surprising things is, um, you know, people said, "Oh, the dads won't come. You won't be able to get the dads." Well, the dads came. In almost every case, a father was there and we were able to interview that father. And for those who didn't come, we went after them later through contact information from the mother. Um, a second really striking thing was that um, half of the couples were living together. So, uh, and 85% rated their chances of staying together as high. Now, many of those couples subsequently broke up these were relatively young parents at that time in 2000. The average age of childbirth was, um, you know, 21 for women, 23 for men in, in this population of, um, of people who were not um, legally married at the time of the child's birth. And then we followed them ever since. We followed the moms, we followed the dads, and we followed the children. And now the children are 22, having their own children. Mm. Um, so I'll tell you, I, you know, I assumed uh, leadership of this study with Jane Waldfogel from Columbia just a couple of years ago. Um, but one thing I think we've learned is that fragile families, the phrase is a misnomer. Mm. These families, uh, and then the reason, of course, the study was named fragile families was because uh, uh, they wanted to emphasize, the study's authors wanted to emphasize they were families. Mm -hmm. We thought of, we thought the fathers had selfishly fled the scene, <laughs> but they were there. So they wanted to emphasize, yes, this is a family, although fragile because many of them do break up. Mm -hmm. um, but now what we've learned is how resilient 
uh, these families are. Um, men, both of mothers and fathers, are finding stability either as singles or uh, in subsequent relationship. You know, at the beginning, we saw a lot of churning. Um, of course, middle, you know, college students at Princeton do churning too. Mm -hmm. um, young adults, you know, in our world do churning. The difference is that these young people were churning while having children. Um, whereas, you know, middle, the, the age of first childbirth for, for college educated um, young people is much older. So, so th there was a, this, a lot of churning and a lot of instability in kids' lives. But uh, as the kids reach nine and particularly 15, we really see families figuring it out. Um, now, I will say there's one, there's one troubling thing. And that is when young people get attached to their fathers and their fathers leave for a time, usually because of incarceration and addiction, sometimes because moms are actively keeping them out mm -hmm. um, for good and bad reasons. <laughs> not all good, yeah. but not all bad. Um, the kids are, are bitter. This, this really, as you said, you can't replace a dad. And, and, and they're really bitter. And sometimes when their dads reconnect, um, they're extremely critical. Mm -hmm. of of their dads, at least at first. I mean, I, I would say to dads out there, keep trying um, because many of the dads are able to eventually reconnect, but there's a lot of anger. And this even happens in cases where the father has been separated due to incarceration. Mm -hmm. So the kids don't give the dads a break. You know how teenagers are? They don't give their parents a break. And so we are seeing, um, you know, young people saying, hey, you got to earn the title of that. I'm not going to just give you that title. Mm -hmm. And I think part of this is in mass incarceration policy, criminal mm -hmm. justice. Um, this has really hurt our families in ways that are really palpable in the narratives of young, young uh, adolescents and young adults. Um, and ineffective responses uh, to addiction. Our, <laughs> our public health response to addiction is, is deplorable. And especially if you don't have a lot of economic resources. Right. Um, so, you know, um, and if, so the, the decisions that we make about how we treat men in their, you know, in their family building years really have consequences that, that echo. So oftentimes when a dad says, I want to reconnect with my 15-year-old, he's going to be put through his paces, right? And so it takes a, a tremendous amount of persistence and perseverance and humility to, to make that connection. Dads are doing it, but um, they're, it's not easy. Yeah, you... Um... Um, you said something that struck me. One of my interviews I just did, and back to just aired this weekend, was with uh, Ron Tierino of the uh, Ridge Project in Ohio. And he tells the story of coming home from incarceration and having to go through what he describes as a, a, a man battle with his son. Um, yeah. who assumed the position of man of the house while he was incarcerated um, and wanted to come home 
And when he got home, his son wasn't ready um, to give up that position in his physical manifestation. It took place at the kitchen table where his son sat at the head of the table. And when he came home, he wouldn't give up that seat to his dad. And it took a minute for Ron to figure out what to say to him um, to get him to relinquish having to feel like he had to hold on to this role. And he did that by apologizing to him for putting him in the position of having to be the man of the family. And that was my responsibility. And I apologize for that. But now I want to give you back something that I took away from you. And that is to allow you to be a child. Um, you need oh my to be a child. It's just every time I hear Ron and Kathy tell that story, it breaks me down. But what yeah. you just described is that in real time for these dads yes. to come back and what that looks like. The other question I was going to ask you as you talk about these um, children coming into year 23 of their lives is something that I've been thinking about a lot. And I wonder whether or not you um, and your colleagues are kind of thinking about the intergenerational difference of these children based on previous generations. Because what you're describing and talking about is these new generation Zers, right? And I got two in my house. I have a 13-year-old boy and a 15-year-old nephew in my house. And they're next-level kids. They're nothing like any of my other kids. They are very, very different in a lot of different ways. And I always describe them based on how the descriptor of Generation Zers are right now. Um, but the two attributes is, one, is that they have absolutely no fear of authority. And number two is that they are intimately and intricately connected to technology, meaning that if you take away their technology, they struggle with being that all of their um, who they are to the world and who they are to their friends are manifest through technology. As you're looking at the characteristics of these children that are being raised, are you seeing um, generational differences between them and their parents and previous generations. Yeah, so that's one really huge advantage of the Fragile Family Study. Um, once we hit age 22, we were interviewing the children at exactly the same age that the parents were mm. when they had them. And now, of course, we're, we're, we're planning for year 27. So we're really able, one of the main, our main goals in the study now is to look at that intergenerational persistence. But I can tell you um, one difference we have a lot of data from, not only from fragile families, but what we've been doing with the, um, it's a random sample of young people um, who came of age in Baltimore. They were all raised in Baltimore public housing and we've been following them for, for many years. And uh, the girls have changed more than the boys, <laughs> at least according to the data we have. So if you talk to the, you know, and I've been talking to mothers for years and years, you know, I was slow to come to the fatherhood, um, the fatherhood work. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was really good that I did because I definitely uh, had to revise many of my, many of my views. Mm -hmm. But um, the girls are saying to us, you know, I want to, um, I don't want to have a baby till I'm 30. Mm. I have all these goals and I have all these plans. 
you know, they, they really, um, they're sounding like, you know, when, when, when I talked to their mothers, and of course I, I did talk to their mothers in, in that first wave of the Fragile Family Study, I followed 75 of the moms and the dads. Mm-hmm. Um, women were much more focused on children as a key source of meaning and identity. Mm-hmm. And I would say among this generation, they're really focused on, on career, on career entry. Uh, they also really look at the 20s as a time of exploration. Uh, not in the way the middle class, you know, it's not the expedited, or the, it's not the, you know, the long winding path that middle class kids are taking now. They're becoming adults around 30. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but they, you know, they, they aspire to having um, that, that time to explore. Um, however, reality, you know, especially among low-income kids, sets in quickly and, and they end up sort of shortchanging those dreams. So they have big, big dreams, vocationally in particular, but the, the one woman who wants to be a nurse is a nurse's aide. And so there's this sort of, um, this push into adulthood really by, by virtue of economic necessity and, and you know, the need to move out of the household of origin because of overcrowding and and so on. That um, it's an interesting portrait of of the moms that they're really sounding very career oriented, but they're dating. They're yeah, they're, they're yeah. dating. Or oh my goodness, it's so interesting that you man, you speaking my truth right now. And so <laughs> I have of my four girls, my two youngest ones, um, and Zinga, who's twenty three. Um, went to one year of college um, and dropped out to pursue her entrepreneurship dreams. Yes. Um, yes, I believe that. One who is 26 years old, single, no children, and she's just living her best life. And I'm so yeah. envious of her. It's like every time I talk to her, it's like, Dad, I'm going to like, I'm going to Cancun this weekend. I've been, and she saves, she works, she saves her money, and she goes on vacations and she's uninhibited. And I'm like, oh my goodness, man, I wish I was able to do that at your age and not have to worry about being a dad and being responsible and having a job and doing those things. And my boys coming up behind her has the same exact spirit. Like family is not part of their trajectory. It often makes me think about, um, and you've heard this and I heard somebody mention it the other day, and there's always conversation around this relevancy, this whole um, notion of success sequence, right? Um, a children right. going to going to college, you know, getting their degree, coming home, getting a job, finding their soulmate, um, getting a house, then having a the baby. Like that is thrown all the way out the door. It is. It is. <laughs> children are it not is. thinking that way, um, and they're really beginning to your point. Think about. Um, how they're going to build and structure their own lives before they begin to start thinking about how to build it collectively with someone else. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So the the last time we talked face to face with the fragile families, young people, they were 19. I mean, we were surveying them, but we go out and talk to them as well. And and I, I think the boys are a little more lost. Mm. You know, they they still is. Um, a lot of starting and stopping. Uh, we know this from from educational research, but a lot of starting and stopping 
uh, especially that first year of post-secondary education is, is really tough. Um, it's still very tough, even if you're a high school graduate, no criminal record, to find full-time stable work. You know, as manufacturing has declined, uh, it is just very, very hard. And, and a lot of young people are turning in the, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're in school. Most of them go to school. They try post-secondary education, um, but they end up churning and racking up debt. And many times they do so in the face of these, um, of these um, you know, uh, privately owned for-profit schools. So um, in the Baltimore sample, 70% of the kids enrolled in one of these schools. And, um, you know, they signed up to be an HVAC uh, repair person, and they don't know what that is. And they suddenly walk by a phlebotomy class, and they think, oh, I want to do that. And, and then it turns out they get the phlebotomy degree, and they can't find a job that pays more than $16 an hour, 20 hours a week. And so right. so they're, they're churning in this path you know, this period where middle-class kids are sort of, you know, going to college, going for four years, maybe they're dropping out, you know, your, like your daughter to, to uh, pursue something more creative than the standard path. But, mm-hmm. but I think um, less educated, you know, or less, you know, less um, advantaged young people especially the boys are really having a hard time getting a foothold in this economy. I know you are paying attention to the work that particularly the government is putting into responsible fatherhood and income supports for low income families and moms and those kinds of things. I remember, you know, as I'm sure you do um, in the first iteration of grants that went out for responsible fatherhood, there was a heavy emphasis on, the demand of including um, DV um, before you began to do responsible fatherhood work. And then in the next iteration, there was a shift from DV to child support. And then in the next iteration, a shift from child support Mm -hmm. to workforce development. And now in this latest iteration, um, a shift from workforce development to soft skills um, and training and co-parenting and relationship. From your vantage point in terms of what you're seeing in your space of research and how the federal government is aligning programs uh, with trying to serve these folks on the ground, what are we missing? What, what, why is it that we have not been able to find the holy grail of programs um, to ensure that these individuals are healthy um, in the lives of their children? Well, I have two responses. One is that we've actually never had evidence, you know, even from the um, Building Strong Families programs that more contact led to more domestic violence. That's the story we tell ourselves um, it's to, to justify excluded men. And, you know, they're not, the men <laughs> in question are disproportionately black and brown. So. Um, there's a lot of prejudice still against um, black and brown people, but maybe particularly this this image of the predatory black and brown man, black mm-hmm. or brown man, is just really salient in our culture. And so we see that manifest in this whole domestic violence narrative, despite 
a lack of evidence to the contrary. And by the way, um, the domestic violence training that goes on in these programs is good. We could all learn those skills. So it's not to say that, that that's bad, but you know, we could probably <laughs> all benefit, not just people in, in fatherhood programs. So my, my assessment is that um, we're sort of telling ourselves a big lie about the situation these fathers are in. How uh, many of them have been formally incarcerated or suffered with addiction, they've been exposed to violence and it's trauma, right? Many have experienced childhood trauma as well. Um, then, um, you know, in many cases, they've been separated from their child for a time, as I said before, and the child support system, um, you know, it's, it's really broken. We need it. It's the biggest anti-poverty program except tax credits that we have, um, but it's really broken, it, especially in the way it treats unmarried men who get no rights in most states to visitation or decision-making over the child, but are often levied up to 65% of their income in order to pay child support. Uh, I've written about this extensively, but we're putting people in a situation where they cannot succeed. Uh, there was a, a, a really neat um, uh, experiment in San Francisco, San Francisco Child Support, where fathers um, were, and, and then of course there are the issue of arrears, especially government on arrears, but arrears more generally, which are crippling because these awards are so high. So, by the way, middle-class men only pay about 20% 20 of their income in child support. So this is really unfair. <laughs> but, but um, you know, what, what this, what this um, little experiment did is it, uh, a private foundation paid to forgive the debt, all the arrears of dads who would stay current on with the understanding the dads would stay then current on their child support. And we went out and interviewed these men and it was like a death to life narrative. You know, because they were debt free, they were no longer paying that 65%, but were paying at a more reasonable level. They were using the money to take their kids to Fisherman's Wharf and to go on special outings to buy school supplies. They were seeing their kids more, um, it was just, you know, such a parable of what we could do if we actually extended dignity and respect to these men in the same way that we do to other people in society who, who can claim more privileges. Wow. So I think the problems are really of our own making. We've stigmatized and excluded a group of people. Mm -hmm. uh, we put them through hell. And um, we've subjected them to rules that don't apply mm -hmm. to more privileged people. And then we say, what's wrong? What's wrong with this intervention? Why isn't it working? Um, well, what is amazing, though, is how many dads persevere despite that. And, um, you know, we should, we should really be in awe of these, of these fathers. Yeah, I think one of the good things is when... Um, you know, as I'm listening to you and I'm thinking about, so we have a fire grant here in Atlanta 
um, and we created what we call the Gentle Warriors Academy. Mm. So I love you know, thank you. I've really been able to take these multiplicity of years of things that I've learned in my other spaces, whether it was heading the New York State Fatherhood Initiative or my current role overseeing the National Responsible Fatherhood Clearinghouse and providing TA and talking to countless people across the country and having great minds like you kind of feed me a little bit, you know, real information and, and real thought. And I poured all of that into Gentle Warriors Academy to try to create a model. And we are doing so well. Um, you know, each year we have now been about a hundred between 150 and 160% over our goals for serving men. Wow. Um, and on our Facebook page, we created specifically for dads in the Metro Atlanta area. We're now approaching like 3,600 dads on that page and they're dialoguing and conversation, conversating and we're moving around. And one of the things that I'm learning now that I'm back on the ground, because I resisted that work so vehemently over my course of my year, because I've been there, done that. I wanted to be in the technical assistant professional development space and not in the direct service. But here yeah. I am in Atlanta providing direct service. But as I listen to the voices of all of these men that come through our space, we just did a graduation a week ago. Um, with 50 fathers. Um, and we have a partnership now with Morehouse College where we're doing our graduations on the campus of Morehouse. Oh, I love that. That's powerful. Thank you to connect these mostly um, African-American dads to the institution that is known around the country for educating black fathers, uh, black men in this country and trying to make that connect to them. But um, in Georgia, I don't know if you know, one of the biggest issues that we're trying to figure out how to interact and engage and impact this particular policy is this policy of legitimation. So in the state of Georgia, um, if you are unmarried, and we're the only state in the country that has this two process um, for legal access to your children, if you are unmarried at the birth of your child, you have no legal rights to your child in the state of Georgia. Um, you can be deemed a father through paternity and child support can come at you, but you cannot apply for custody and parenting time because you don't have legal access to their child. And there's a whole other host of things that happens around that. And there was a young lady, Dr. Chalanda Smith, that did her dissertation on legitimation um, and found that uh, as it relates to child support, that uh, that fathers are less likely to pay child support when they do not have custody or parenting time. Yes. And less likely if they don't have, if they have custody and no parenting time, but more likely to pay child support if they have both. And so when you yeah. talk to these fathers, to your point about those things that really matter to them. It's not the money. The money doesn't matter. If they have the means to pay child support, they will, but they struggle with doing that when you on the backhand side say to them, they don't have access, legal access to their children. Um, and it's just something that it, it's, it, it seems and sounds, you know, barbaric 
you know, in the sense that you would hold people's children, but it's a law that's been on the books for a hundred years and no one has taken up the mantle to begin to get it off the books. And what we're learning now is over the last 10 years, close to 560,000 children in the state of Georgia have been born um, without legitimate fathers in their lives. And no one seems to understand the damage that that's doing to dads. I so agree with you. Um, you know, it's, uh, I was gonna say something about this law, oh, about fatherhood programs. Um, one thing I think that's hampered, you know, our creativity in this space, and I think you've just given a really great example of how sometimes we're so, it, we're, we're tasked with direct service and we don't have the, we don't have the bandwidth for the advocacy that's needed to, to really make uh, the systemic change, chance, you know, the change. There's, there's people who are working so hard in the space, but how do you, you know, I'm most familiar, of course, with with um, with uh, Center for Urban Families in Baltimore, where I do some volunteer. How do you lift your your head up out of the tunnel of of providing direct service to to try to get a law like that mm -hmm. off the books? Mm -hmm. um, the fathers I talked to call that you know taxation without representation. <laughs> they they really you know rail against this. Um, but the people who perpetuate these systems uh, need to be convinced that, um, you know, caring and pain go together. And if you want to improve child support, improve visitation, we have so much research showing that's true. Mm -hmm. So I wonder sometimes if we as a society aren't more intent on punishing. Like, do we really care about kids? Mm -hmm. If we did. Wow. <laughs> Right? If do we really yeah. care about child well-being? Um, this is a win-win. Right. It's a win-win, and uh, so I sometimes wonder: Are we as a you know is our is our social ethos more about punishing a group of men because of an old narrative, really that you can trace back from to the 1950s mm -hmm. about mm -hmm. single parents, mm -hmm. other parents having deserted the family. You know, we used to call these men deserters. There was no thought that they would want to be involved. Mm -hmm. wow. So we're still stuck with this old narrative and, and um, what we're doing does not make sense because children will be better off both financially and emotionally. And we know the mom is not going to be at greater risk in most, in most cases, as long as we keep taking precautions to, to make sure that everyone in our society knows what a healthy relationship is. Mm -hmm. As we round to a close, Dr. Eden, I want to um, get your thoughts on the increasing conversation around trauma-informed care and this conversation around mental health, particularly as it relates to low-income parents and more specifically as it relates to fatherhood and fathers of color. And so I'm actually working on um, the outline of a book now that I'm, I've been wanting to pen for a while and I just haven't had a chance to get to it. But the title of the book is Why Does Poverty Look Like Me? Um, yeah, Ooh, wow. With an expl uh, exploration on how 
um, when you describe and define what poverty looks like or what poverty is, why does that picture continue to look like me when the descriptor of poverty is colorless? At least that's what people try to make you believe. Um, and the whole notion of the mental health space and how people are functioning given the last two and a half years of COVID and dramatically having to shift how we do business, how we live, how we work, which is a whole study I'm sure you guys are going to pounce all over, you know, yeah. 10 years from now when you see the impact that COVID had on parenting styles and the way fathers stepped up and the way moms and dads came together and how we co-parented. Um, and then the political turmoil and all that, that lended to the conversation in America as well and how people kind of walk through that. But when you look at the mental health aspect of the work that you're doing, how do you include that in your conversation and, 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 and in the work that you do? I just, um, I'm about to finish a book called The Injustice of Place which really takes a look at these issues um, from a deeply historical perspective. And trauma goes way back, right? The very same people who poverty, you know, the poverty looks like me people are the children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren of people in our society that have been subjugated to an almost unbelievable degree, exposed to near starvation, um, it, during seasons of the year when there were no crops to put in the soil or to, or to harvest, um, uh, denied basic human rights uh, for everything from voting to the access to unemployment insurance, um, were, were exposed to schools that didn't even attempt uh, to teach people to get ahead because what you wanted was a maintenance of the supply of cheap labor that kept kept the economy going for the for the haves. So um, <laughs> so if you you bring that all forward, and um, you know I have found in my in my not in my historical work but in my more contemporary work that if you really talk to people about their life histories, traumas everywhere. Mm. We were in Chicago this summer interviewing um, young adult men who are part of an anti-violence program. Mm. And sometimes the stories are so painful, the men literally couldn't tell us their life story. It, it was too hard for them to go back there and relive it in a conversation. This is you know, this is a, a result of the decisions we've met, made, right? So in the case of Chicago, you know, you have people coming up from Mississippi and Alabama, uh, very traumatic. You have, you have uh, Puerto Rican and, and Mexican populations, um, the, some of the Mexican-Americans coming up from South Texas, uh, which had, you know, very similar labor relations as, as did the Deep South. Um, you know, but maybe to a lesser degree because there was no history of uh, enslavement. Um, so all of this comes together and you put people in segregated neighborhoods, deeply unequal schools. Um, 
a lot happens to kids. You, you stress parents out, you know, since we decided that, you know, in the 90s that, that even mothers of very young children should work. Often in order to make it in this economy, that means working two jobs. Who takes care of the kids? Who, who protects? Right? If you're moving in and out of, you, you're churning between relationships and you're churning between houses, um, every move exposes your children to risk. Absolutely. So most middle-class people have no idea. <laughs> you know, our, our students are coming to terms with mental health here at Princeton, mm-hmm. and I, which is really important, and, and I just applaud them and their courage and their self-advocacy. Um, but we don't have the spaces for that that we need to uh, for non-affluent people. Yeah, one of the fights that I was going to pick up and I picked it up and then I put it back down, but it's on my shelf. At some point, I'm going to pick it back up. And that is to encourage SAMHSA um, to add fatherlessness as one of their aces. Um, I think Uh that fatherlessness is an ace around adverse childhood experiences that should be explored deeper. Um, I know they have something in there about incarceration and also separated parents, but to me, those two things are different um, than thoughtlessness, that there's a conversation that needs to be had around how that experience in and of itself impacts our children um, and also impacts the mental health of not only our children, but of the parents and the communities to which they live. I picked it up yep. some time ago. I, w- I had some traction and then I got distracted by something and I never picked it back up, but it is something that I want to jump back in to. Um, you are so awesome, Dr. Eden. I don't know if anybody ever told so are you. you. <laughs> you are. I, I just absolutely love everything about you, all the work you've done. I've followed you from years and years. Um, you know, Dr. Mincy has always spoken extremely highly of you, and he was the first one who told me about you, and I began to just start following your work and trying to include you on every dialogue that I have around the country. Um, I think your work is critical, and I want to find ways for us to be more closely aligned so that I can share with you some of the things, particularly that we're learning around the country, and more specifically here in Atlanta, through our direct service work. And also at some point wanna follow you and talk to you a little bit about something that we created two years ago that we're also beginning to gain some traction in, and that is we created um, within Fathers Incorporated the Moynihan Institute for Fatherhood Research and Policy. Um, I love it. That focuses directly um, on black fathers and their families. And we use the Moynihan report as the foundation of where we begin our research, not as a honor of Senator Moynihan. It has absolutely nothing to do with him. It has to do with the report that creates yeah. the research foundation for us to build from and to begin to start writing the right narrative about what's happening um, with particularly black fathers around the country. Tell us how we can get in touch with you, how we can get your books, about anything that you want us to know um, so that I can make sure that people find out more about you. Well, you can find me on uh, email, keden at princeton.edu. I directed the Center for Research on Child Wellbeing, which hosts the Fragile Family Study. 
And if you want to know about the research on any topic with regard to fathers, you can go right to our website and see what's been published. And you can, you can, uh, and we, we do have quite a lot of things on now on a systems involvement um, with our young people. So this is sort of the precursor to incarceration, right? Is the systems involvement that can start really young and be very consequential. So that's kind of a new emphasis of our center. Um, uh, I've got a couple of websites. We've still got doingthebestican.com up um, for our fatherhood work. And at the center, we're beginning to do fatherhood work um, first locally in the state of New Jersey, but um, we intend to, uh, to, uh, to extend that work as we, as we learn lessons from, from how to do the quick kind of advocacy you've been doing for many years. So we should definitely join forces. And uh, I always love talking with you. Thank you so much. And thank you for all of you who joined I Am Dad podcast today. My guest today, Dr. Catherine Eden. Um, she is an awesome, awesome individual. Please um, Google her, as the young folks say, and find out about her and her work. Thank you for joining me. And we'll see each and every one of you next Sunday morning, same time, same place. Have a great week. Thank you so much for taking the time to spend with us. You've been listening to I Am Dad podcast. We hope that you have been informed, encouraged you to think, or even inspired your heart for the love of dads. The conversation does not end here. Come back and join us next week. Same time, same place. Or you can continue the dialogue on our I Am Dad Facebook page. We also invite you to listen to past episodes, learn more about us, and keep up with special activities by visiting IamDadPodcast.com. That's IamDadPodcast.com. Until next time, I leave you with this reminder of manhood from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 11. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. Because of this reminder, I will always understand that I am dad, period. period.